How can we best optimize pharmacotherapy in patients with type 2 diabetes? What are treatment barriers that we need to keep in mind and the comorbid disease states we might be able to effectively treat at the same time? You're listening to ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD. Our guest is Dr. Sue Cornell, PharmD, a certified diabetes educator and assistant director of experiential education at Midwestern University Chicago College of Pharmacy. A fellow of the American Pharmacists Association, Dr. Cornell is also an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Midwestern. Dr. Cornell, welcome to the program. Thank you, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here today. We're discussing current trends and treatment goals for diabetes, but by way of introduction, I'd like to start off actually by asking you to uh, briefly describe your job and what you do on a day-to-day basis when it comes to clinical practice. One of the things that I do, I multitask, as you very well know, and as medical professionals, we all do that, but my clinical practice is actually in a free community clinic And I work with a group of folks, multidiscipline team. We have physicians, primary care endocrinologists, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses, dietitians, pharmacists. So we work as a team together to help patients in underserved communities better manage their conditions. And my main emphasis is with the people that have diabetes. So as a certified diabetes educator, I work in tandem with my colleagues to help these people better manage their diabetes. Let's distinguish between blood sugar levels taken at different times of the day. How do clinicians interpret a, say, a morning fasting serum blood glucose as compared to uh, postprandial values? As you know, we have several sets of guidelines that are available to choose from. We have the American Diabetes Association guidelines and then the Endocrinologist Association guidelines. So, you know, based on the ADA guidelines, they prefer the fasting blood sugar levels to be between 90 and 130, a one to two hour postprandial to be less than 180, and then they're looking for an A1C, which is the average three-month blood sugar, to be less than 7%. The American College of Endocrinologists, they actually have a little bit tighter of guidelines. So for their fasting, they're looking to be less than 110 in the morning, less than 140 at a two-hour postprandial and less than 6.5% for their A1C. And at the clinic that I'm actually working at, because of the fact we work with some very top-notch endocrinologists, we do use the ACE guidelines, the endocrinologist guidelines, opposed to the ADA guidelines. What do the different values taken at different times of the day tell us? It's interesting because one of the things that, you know, many practitioners or clinicians will do is they'll give a patient is diagnosed with diabetes or even in pre-diabetes and they'll give them a blood glucose monitor and they'll say, here, go check your sugar. And patients, you know, hopefully will actually adhere to what their provider has told them. Some do and some don't. And I think that's a different interview at a different time. But what happens is patients will go do this and they have no idea what numbers they're supposed to get, nor do they know what those numbers mean. So one of the things that we try to do is educate the patient on knowing their numbers. The patient is the one who has diabetes. They're the one who is best in the position to manage their diabetes. As clinicians, we can assist them, but when the patient leaves our office and goes home, they're going to do what they want. So my goal as an educator is to give them tools to know what to do that can help them opposed to not help them. And one of the things I like to do is teaching them about what do the numbers mean. So, for example, when the patients are testing their blood sugar in the morning and every time it's above their target goal, 
whether you're using the ACE or the ADA guidelines. But every time it's above their number, that tells the patient their risk for microvascular disease. So I will actually say to a patient, when you're checking in the morning and it's above 110, that's telling you you're at greater risk for having eye problems, kidney problems, nerve or foot problems. When they check two hours after a meal, and that's two hours from the first bite of food, by the way, that's telling them their macrovascular risk. So I'll tell a patient if you check two hours after a meal and it's over 140, that's telling you you're at risk for heart disease, a heart attack or a stroke or peripheral vascular disease. So that's letting them know about their macrovascular disease. Now, you'd mentioned different goals set by different organizations. How are patients doing as far as uh, meeting those goals are concerned? And that is a big concern right now in the United States as well as worldwide. You know, we have many of the bigger managed care institutions as well as just some of your bigger conglomerate hospital institutions that are looking at, as they put it, the report card. And so how does the report card hold up? And a lot of information and retrospective data is being collected to see. Now, the good news is, although we had a little dip as far as we're not improving, we've actually started to improve in the past few years. So since the NHANES data came out in 2002, which was somewhat devastating because our report card score went down, now we're seeing in 2004 and 2006 that we're actually improving somewhat. But unfortunately, we're improving in silos, not as a whole. And what I mean by that is if you look at people who have an A1C, how many people nationwide have actually an A1C of less than 7? And interestingly, it's near 50%. It's roughly 49.5%. So that's pretty good because a few years ago it was 38%. So we've improved. But then if we look at the silo of how many people have their blood pressure under control, and for a person with diabetes that's less than 130 over 80, we've actually only got about 40%. And then when we look at lipids and an LDL of less than 100, we have about 36%. Now, that's in the different silos. But when you ask how many people in the United States have met all three of these goals, the A1C, the blood pressure, the cholesterol, so the ABCs, it's only 7%. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Our guest is Dr. Sue Cornell, PharmD, a certified diabetes educator and assistant director of experiential education at Midwestern University Chicago College of Pharmacy. We're discussing the management of type 2 diabetes and common comorbid disease states. I'd like to resume by asking you to discuss what some of the current trends are that we're seeing with a multidisciplinary approach to the treatment of diabetes. Well, Charles, as you know, we've had over the years some dips in our report card and that we're not really meeting our goals of treatment. Now, the good news is because this has become a huge public awareness, the report card is improving. So more and more companies, or I should say institutions, are trying to get into a multidisciplinary approach to treating the patient. Main thing is the patient is the center. So we're starting to move from what's known as the current model, of course, the acute care model, where we wait till a problem happens and then we try to fix it, to the chronic care model of prevention. How can we prevent this from happening? And as you're aware, the chronic care model totally embraces the multidiscipline approach with the patient as the center and the patient leading the team. Now, with that being said, a lot of 
primary care offices are actually employing certified diabetes educators or people that have had exceptional training in diabetes education. So they're actually employing CDEs or nurse practitioners, PAs, pharmacists with specialty practice in ambulatory care and diabetes. And we see the multidiscipline approach to help the patient and guide them to better manage their disease. What's coming in the pipeline of diabetes medications? Currently, we actually have nine classes of drugs on the market. There's six that are oral medications and three that are injectable medications. And this has come a long way since 1995. So really, just in the last decade, we've seen this huge plethora of growth within diabetes medication management. We have a lot more to choose from today. And as you know, diabetes is a multiple organ disease. So there are multiple organs that are broke, and now we're actually picking drugs to fix the broken organ. And one of the things that I always say when you're thinking about what medication should I choose for this patient, there's five key points to actually consider when choosing a medication for a patient. First of all, what's the duration of the disease? How long has that patient had diabetes? If they've had it a few years, that's a big difference than if they've had it 20 years. If they've had the disease 10 or 20 years, their insulin production is probably little to non-existent. So if you pick a medication that requires endogenous insulin, it's not going to be effective. Secondly, what blood glucose level is not at target? Is it fasting or is it postprandial or both? And then picking the medication that will target either fasting, postprandial, or both. And sometimes that will require combination therapy. Next, how much A1C lowering do we need? Do you need a little bit, a lot? And again, picking the drug that will help target not only what glucose is out of whack, but to give the A1C lowering effect as well. Fourth, what is the patient's preference? I mean, if you have a patient who refuses to inject a medication, they do not want any needle, and you give them insulin or exenatide, they may or may not use it, and your adherence to the medication regimen is going to be questioned. So, you know, what is the patient preference, and are they willing to take a different route of administration? And then fifth and final, of course, is what is the side effect profile and the patient's ability to tolerate that. So those are five key points to look at when we're actually looking at managing a patient's diabetes. So we need to use that to pick what drugs we want to choose to treat them. Now, interestingly, like I've mentioned, many of the newer drugs that are coming or have come out are treating a defect in the body. Now, Coming down the road, we have a lot more drugs in the pipeline, and probably one of the more interesting ones that's coming closer on the oral agents, which might be the seventh category or the seventh agent to the oral medication armamentarium, is the SGLT2s, which is the sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors. And these drugs actually work to have the kidney reabsorb glucose. It actually has the body take the absorbed glucose that would normally be reabsorbed and excrete it out of the body. How long after uh, initiating a new drug therapy in a patient with diabetes is it safe to conclude one way or the other whether the therapy is working? That's really patient-specific, depending on, you know, are you adding a new medication? How has the patient responded? General rule of thumb is give it three months, and if the patient is not at goal, 
take another look at it. In some cases, again, pending on the individual patient, I've known physicians who will see the patient every month, every other month, every three months, or every four months. But in general, according to the ADA algorithm and consensus guideline, we really like to look at the patient every three months, and if they're not at goal with the current treatment, then we need to either increase their therapy or we need to add on additional therapy. We've been talking with Dr. Sue Cornell about treatment considerations and the management of type 2 diabetes. Dr. Cornell, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much, Charles. It was a pleasure to be here today. I'm Dr. Charles Turk. You've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening.